Welcome back to Survival Matters, a podcast about surviving and flourishing in the 21st century. I'm Mark, your host from Australia 21. We are an independent, not-for-profit public policy think tank that does research on the critical social, environmental, economic and national security issues facing Australia. In the last session, we spoke with Professor Fiona Stanley about the impact that unsustainable consumption has on health. In this session, I'm talking with Ian Dunlop about the need for urgent political action and if what we're doing is enough. For over the past 20 years, we have seen the world leaders meet numerous times to try and address climate change. We have seen protests in the streets, kids boycotting school, people blocking trains that deliver supplies to mines, and farmers holding dead 100-year-old cod pleading for change. The people of Australia seem to be becoming more aware of the issues we face. We've seen some change, but many say that Australia's leaders aren't acting fast enough to prevent catastrophe. So are we doing enough to stop these problems? Let's hear from Ian Dunlop. Ian is a former oil, gas and coal industry executive, who was chair of the Australian Coal Association in the 1980s, and chair of the Australian Greenhouse Office Experts Group on Emission Trading, which developed the first emissions trading proposal for Australia in the late 1990s. He is a member of the Club of Rome and a director of Australia 21. Thanks for joining us, Ian. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Ian, given your huge amount of experience in the area, how serious are these threats that we're discussing in this podcast? Well, they are extremely serious. Um, The challenge we face today is really stemming from the result of exponential growth in both population and consumption, uh, particularly over the last 50 years since the end of World War II. But it's been going on really since the Industrial Revolution. Now, the only way we've been able to enjoy that growth, which of course has brought a great increase in wealth to many parts of the world, but not all of them, the only reason that that's possible is because of the ready availability of fossil fuel energy. And unfortunately, the Faustian bargain, if I can call it that, we've struck is that those same fossil fuels that have brought this growth and wealth are now basically destroying the environment upon which humanity depends for its very survival. The symptoms, the danger of that sort of exponential system expansion are, are many and varied. And that's going on within a finite Earth system. But the most urgent requirement of all is to address climate change by rapid reducing carbon emissions, because if we don't do that, the global climate is going to change out of all proportion to anything we've known historically, and essentially has the potential to destroy civilization as we know it. Ian, given that around 85% of Australia's electricity is generated from fossil fuels, how would you propose we stop something like this? Well, the first step is that we have to be brutally frank about the problem we're confronted with, and we haven't been doing that. I mean, the science on climate change has been well known for three or four decades, if not longer. Uh, The problem is that the real implications of the science have not been discussed, and that is that uh, if we are to address the problem, we are going to have to move to take emergency action to see those emissions reduced. We've unfortunately left, we we may have avoided that had we started uh, moving on this, say, three decades ago when the the UN climate change negotiating framework was initially formed in 1992. 
But as the three decades have passed, we haven't taken serious action. The global emission levels have continued to rise consistently. We've had the negotiating frameworks like the Kyoto Protocol, which started in 1997, and now the Paris Agreement in 2015. And whilst there'd been a lot of rhetoric and goodwill that we would now take serious action, in reality it hasn't happened. So the starting point's got to be a recognition and acceptance that that's the mess we've got ourselves into. And acknowledging those risks, we then have to start um, an emergency reframing of the problem uh, to ensure that we see that emission reduction and we make a lot of other changes beside that. So you've said the climate science is in, so the scientists agree, and we've also had the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, which shows a global awareness of at least climate change. So why do you think we are being so slow to respond and take action? Well, it's, it's very difficult in a world that has become accustomed to using fossil fuels as the basis for pretty much anything they do. The energy industries that have grown up around that fossil fuel use, because of their importance in essentially in developing that growth and the wealth generation, have accrued enormous political power. So you see the oil industry, the coal industry, the gas industry, they have gained tremendous influence in political systems across the world. If you look at the major fossil fuel producing countries, it's fair to say that the politics in those countries are basically dominated by the fossil fuel industries. So you have an awful lot of vested interests who are not keen to see acceptance of the climate science. And therefore, they've been spending most of the last three decades doing quite deliberately as much as they possibly can to slow up the process of addressing the problem. Now, that has got us to the point where we are now seeing the implications of climate denial starting to be manifest in the way the climate system is changing in a very direct sense. So you're seeing a, a rapid increase in the number of extreme events around the world. That is uh, creating now pretty disastrous situations. Many, many lives are being lost. Futures are being ruined because of those extreme events. We've seen them in Australia. I mean, you look at what's just happened in the uh, floods around Townsville, which is probably going to mm -hmm. take at least a decade for the agricultural industry, which was affected, to recover from that. You've seen it in the bushfires in um, Victoria and Tasmania this year. But that's only the latest in a long series of escalation of extreme climate events. And it's happening all around the world. You look at what happened in California this year with the bushfires, the problems that... Um, We've been seeing in Asia with extreme flooding and uh, extreme temperatures. I mean, the temperatures in, for example, parts of India have been in the high uh, 40s, the low 50s, for quite extended periods of time. And those are temperatures which are beyond the ability of human physiology to function. In other words, people die mm. from those temperatures. Now, that's the, that's the reality we have to get our mind around. But the big issue is that the vested interests that have got us into this problem 
now have to realize that if we don't change, they actually have no future. And that is starting to dawn upon some of them. I mean, there was a major oil industry conference in Houston, Sierra Week, the week before last, which for the first time, the oil industry and the gas industry started to discuss the implications of that industry declining by possibly 30% by 2040, within the next 20 years. Now, that's, I think, the first time that um, I'm aware a major or conference like that has got into those sort of discussions. So it's starting now to dawn on people that that is the reality we face. There is, of course, a whole ideological uh, problem too behind this, and that is that the neoliberal economic paradigm, if you like, the free market philosophy, minimum government, minimum regulation, freedom to do pretty much as you want, has got us into this mess. And it cannot continue. If, if we are to continue down that track, then we actually don't have a, um, a sustainable world. It's a world basically where human civilization will probably disappear as we know it. Now, the ideological opposition to climate change <clears throat> is now coming right up against the reality that, you know, this sort of lack of action has produced. Now, we haven't yet crossed, I think, the threshold where that's accepted by a number of the key players, particularly in this country, where you know, that ideology is still ingrained in our political system and with many of the corporates and what have you, but it is now beginning to change. But we're in a race against time because if we don't move very quickly, we will lose the op opportunity to influence events. So it will move beyond the ability of humanity to actually uh, influence the way climate develops. So do you think humans actually need to change their behaviour? Or do you think we can engineer our way out of climate change through technology in a way that lets us keep our habits? Oh, look, I mean, there's no question that, I mean, we need technological solutions, there's no doubt about that. But they are not of themselves enough to solve this problem. There's going to have to be massive social change. We need to put aside a lot of the ideologies that uh, the in political systems are, are wrapped up in, whether it be uh, neoliberal paradigms in the Western world or indeed a lot of the authoritarian systems, for example, in China. Because if you look at what's happening within the some of the developing world economies, I mean, the, the emission levels there are skyrocketing, even though there's been a lot of commitment, essentially, to uh, trying to reduce them and take far more, pay far more attention to the environment. But so far, that has not translated into containing those emissions at reasonable levels. So it is going to require massive social change, the technological innovations are coming through. I mean, that's the, the very positive point. If you look at, for example, the uh, efficiencies and the costs of renewable energy, they have been dropping dramatically. The cost of storage to ensure that renewable energy can be continuously supplied in what our politicians keep calling dispatchable terms, they are now coming through to the point where those technologies are actually cheaper than using coal, for example. And therefore, there's a becoming a major economic incentive to actually make the change anyway. The other positive dimension is a lot of innovation is taking place in the way we use energy. So the efficiency of a lot of operations is, is dramatically improving. You can expect that there will be all sorts of technological breakthroughs 
which will speed up the transformation process. I mean, we've seen massive changes in, for example, vehicles with electric cars, electric trucks. Uh, you've seen you know, massive transformations in, in rail systems. This is all good, um, but it's not going to be enough. We have to see uh, really extensive social change to complement that if we are to really have a, a sustainable future. Ian, it seems that many people only really listen to sustainability issues when they can save some money. Do you think that change for the sake of saving money is enough? No, it's going to have to be much more than that. I mean, the, the reality is that if we continue what we're currently doing, we are going to destroy civilization as we know it. You take the Paris Agreement, for example, which each country, the 195 countries who signed on to Paris, they all agreed to commit to certain emission reduction levels to contribute to staying well below 2 degrees C temperature increase. Now, those uh, commitments will not take us anywhere near meeting that objective of staying well below 2 degrees C. If we do nothing more than what is currently being committed to, and, and remember, it's all voluntary. It's not, uh, there's no legal commitment behind Paris. Mm -hmm. If we do nothing more, the global temperature level is going to rise to somewhere between around 3.5 degrees C, 3 to 3.5 degrees C. Now, I mean, that is a world which is completely chaotic in any social sense. And it may well lead us up because of some of the tipping points in the climate system that are not well understood at the moment to a world where, in fact, temperature goes to four or five degrees C. Now, that's a world which is completely incompatible with any organized global society. It could be a world where the, the population drops from the current seven and a half billion to less than a billion people. Now, that's what you're facing. So that sort of problem, A, you have to be brutally frank about what we're talking about. And secondly, you, you have to really understand that to get on top of that, and it's in everybody's interest now to do that, whether they've got vested interests in maintaining fossil fuels or you know, they're leading the renewable push or, or anything else, what we need to achieve it is now acceptance of those risks and cooperation to make the massive emergency changes that are going to be needed. So there's got to be a recognition that this is the most important issue the world has to deal with. And unless we deal with it very quickly, we have no real future. So the solutions are basically are there. It's now up to us as to whether we're going to grasp the nettle, as it were, and get stuck into seriously taking that action rather than stuffing around in the way that we have been for the last three decades, pretending to be committed to achieving action and keeping temperatures below two degrees C, mm. and really doing nothing. I mean, if you look at the latest statistics on emissions that have just been uh, published by the IEA, uh, the International Energy Agency, I think, uh, today, actually, when emissions are still going up at a rapid rate, they should be dropping massively right now. We're still investing far more money in fossil fuel projects in the oil and gas industry than in renewables, despite all the rhetoric from you know, companies like Exxon and Shell and BP and so on, that they're uh, totally committed to solving climate change. 
They can't do this. We cannot keep continuing with this complete disconnect between the rhetoric about what we're going to do and what we're actually doing in practice. Ian, that raises another interesting point. How much do we need to rely on the government to make these changes? And how much of this can we do ourselves? Well, you really need, to make this work, you need strong strong government, strong states. And the whole emphasis of our um, ideological approach to, to life with successive governments, for example, in, in, in Australia, in the UK, and uh, in the United States, in the last two decades, has been totally in the opposite direction. In other words, we want small governments, we want minimum regulation, and the freedom to do pretty much as we please, given that uh, that's the best way uh, of increasing efficiency and improving economic growth, and uh, that will improve the, the wealth of the community. And in particular, the continual refrain that we have to do that to raise the developing world out of poverty. Now, I mean, that still continues to be the refrain. It is completely uh, inaccurate to take that view now because what we're doing by continuing that economic growth, fossil fuel-based growth, is essentially ensuring that the developing world is getting into bigger and bigger problems because people are not being raised out of poverty any longer they're now being subject to massive climatic events which are actually destroying economies rather than improving them. So there's got to be a, a fundamental rethink on the part of our society about the role that government actually plays. If you don't have a strong state, it's very hard to get the coordinated action that's going to be required to trigger the type of change we're really talking about. The problem we've got is the governments that we currently have are not capable, in my view, of making that sort of change. We only have to look at the complete chaos in Australia over the last 10 years in trying to adjust climate and energy. We've utterly failed to come up with any sensible policy. And here we are in 2019 with things like the National Energy Guarantee, the Emission Reduction Funds, which are absolutely not capable of facing up to the type of problem we've got. And we have the National Party um, putting on enormous pressure to build more coal-fired power stations on the grounds that our emissions are such a small proportion of the world's total emissions that it doesn't make any difference what we do. That is utter nonsense. I mean, this country, if you include our exports, which you now have to do, our exports of coal and LNG, and you've got to include them because... Climate change is a global problem. It doesn't matter where you emit the uh, exhaust into atmosphere, whether it's in Australia or it's China or India, they still contribute to the global climate that rebounds on us. So to say that our domestic emissions are such as a small proportion is a complete misunderstanding of the science. So we've got to recognise that we are living off the Australian economy is basically totally unsustainable. It's living off the disastrous conditions we are creating for people around the world. So what we need is a strong state that is capable of reversing that ideology, facing up to the problem. Um, I mean, this is no longer a question of left or right politics. If we don't get this right, we have no future. The problem is, how do you create a strong state given the 
dysfunctional system that we currently have. And that is only going to happen if the community get in behind it and start to put enormous pressure on our political system to completely restructure itself. I mean, the conventional two-party adversarial system is not capable of doing this. We're going to have to rethink it. We're going to have something like a government of national unity that is prepared to face up the problem seriously and get the best possible people around the table, the best possible experts, genuine leadership that is capable of really changing the system and addressing this challenge. Now, you're beginning to see the community wake up to it, I think. You've seen the response of school children recently, which is extremely encouraging. Uh, you've also seen the response politically to that, to say they really should not be doing this sort of thing and should stay in their classrooms, which again is just a reflection of the extreme reactionary nature of our politics and the complete um, lack of understanding of the challenge we're now facing. If you look around the world, you're seeing increasing initiatives to take emergency action with climate emergency mobilization proposals. You're seeing organizations like the Extinction Rebellion in Europe, which is no longer prepared to accept that we just sit here and watch these things happening. And we were like rabbits in the headlights, you know, waiting to be run over by a truck. No, we're not going to do that. This is not acceptable. And our politicians have not woken up to, to reality and nor have they in many other countries. So we now have to uh, encourage, I think, developments and community commitment to seeing this sort of change, which I think is going to start happening. Mm -hmm. Ian, we're nearly out of time. Is there any closing statement you'd like to make, particularly to the young people of Australia? Yes, look, I think, the, I think the, you know, that, that awareness is now improving. I think what people need to understand is that the solutions are there. We, we now have the ability to generate energy in, a, in an, an economically viable and sustainable manner, which is low carbon, which doesn't require the use of fossil fuels. Our leaders pretend at the moment you can't do that, but technically you can. The, the point, quite simply, is we have no choice. We have to do this, otherwise we don't have a sustainable civilization, and we have very little time to actually do it. So we need to all get behind that, particularly the young people, and putting pressure on, because that makes a very big difference. And to move ahead with this very positively, because we do have the ability to get on top, but it needs honest discussion, very frank and open discussion. It needs the maximum pressure brought to bear. And we need a lot of what I would call very unreasonable people who aren't prepared to accept any longer the nonsense that we've been served up by our leaders now for the last 20 or 30 years. And I think those sort of initiatives in a constructive sense and a positive sense looking forward and develop the expertise and skills that Australia has that we can get on top of the problem. That's all we have time for in this session. Thanks for joining us, Ian, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for the opportunity to discuss it. It's extremely important, and I, I hope it helps in moving the debate forward. This was the last session of the Survival Matters series. We trust that you've found these podcasts informative, helpful, and also alarming. We at Australia 21, and all we've interviewed in these sessions, consider that humans are in deeply dangerous territory, and if we want to not only survive, but flourish as a species, 
We need to profoundly change the way we relate to each other, all life around us, and especially how we relate to the 10 existential threats we face. Currently, every human on the planet is seriously threatened, and it's time to act. We all hope that this series will encourage conscious, long-term decision-making and empower us all to use the tools we have at hand, like social media, the internet at large, and our day-to-day conversations, to work together as a species to overcome these hurdles once and for all. We all have a role to play, and it is time to get it done. The Survival Matters podcast has been prepared by volunteers and experts who are passionate about protecting our planet. Urgent action is needed, and we want Australians to listen to these podcasts and discuss the issues with their friends and families. Around the globe, we've seen the power of people acting together to make our world a better place. We will be reaching out to people around Australia asking for their responses to the Big Five questions so we can present them to our politicians and get a commitment to urgent action on these 10 threats to human survival. Help us show our politicians that the people of the country they represent feel strongly about these threats and want action. You can help by sharing these podcasts with as many people as you can, getting involved in a small group discussion on the Big Five questions discussed earlier that you can get from the Australia 21 website and provide us with your responses, and supporting our small crowdfunding campaign, which will start on the 29th of April. The campaign will assist us in reaching as many Australians as possible and show politicians that we care about our future and the future of those who will come after us. Find out more about the group discussions, the Big Five Questions and the crowdfunding campaign at australia21.org.au under Survival Matters. I'm Mark, your host from Australia 21, and thank you for listening to Survival Matters. Survival Matters.